Hello, and thank you for joining us today for Geezers of Gear, episode 54. Today's podcast is brought to you by Elation Professional. Elation is showing several world premiere products at LDI this week at booth number 602. They include the fully loaded Artiste Mondrian, the brightest LED profile FX fixture Elation has produced to date at over 50,000 delivered lumens. Featuring an impressive 222 millimeter eight and three quarter inch front lens, it offers a comprehensive effects package along with Elation's Spectracolor color mixing. The Artiste Rembrandt is a full featured LED wash fixture with endless framing and Spectracolor. At over 50,000 delivered lumens, it is ideal for applications requiring superior wash output, stunning colors, powerful beams, and quiet operation. In Elation's Dust and Weatherproof Proteus series comes the Proteus Luscious, a powerful yet compact IP65 rated LED profile fixture with framing, fast zoom optics, and comprehensive FX package. Elation is pleased to be expanding its Fuse series, designed to be the perfect fusion of performance, features, and value. The Fuse Wash FR is an LED Fresnel with zoom and framing designed for theater, television, or any precision lighting application. A high CRI and RGB MA LED array deliver outstanding colors, including variable whites. And finally, the Fuse SFX is a new concept LED FX fixture with CMY color mixing, variable frost, gobos, and zoom for applications requiring a compact and powerful multi-purpose luminaire. Check out these and all Elation products at Elation Booth 602 at LDI this year. Episode 54 is also brought to you by GearSource Text for Gear. This new platform gets you the greatest deals on gear in a very exclusive text format where you can simply reply with just the quantity of units that you want to purchase. A simple one number reply gets you an order, gets you at the front of the queue, gets you that product at a price that is not even available on the website. So to sign up, just text the word gear to 866-669-GEAR. can't get it right can you i can't get it right it's i got it got it like about a millisecond after it started that's funny <laughs> i guess we'll wait till ldi i'll be in fine form for that for the yeah yeah episode 54 here we are ldi here week we are. it is ldi week 2019 and we are headed to vegas and for those of you who don't know most of us are going today <laughs> However, the pop star diva in our group, which would from now on be known as Henry, is going tomorrow at a very leisurely schedule and, you know, walking in once the stage is all set and everything's set up and, you know, all the work is done. Henry's going to walk in and go, I'm here, you know, yeah, ta-da. I'm sleeping in until, 
<laughs> I'm sleeping in until 3 a.m. tomorrow morning so I can catch the flight. See? So. See? Leisurely. Oh, my God. Yeah, so you the get in tomorrow. And, yeah. Uh, you know the most amazing thing, though, about the flight this time of year when it's set close to... It's a day to, late? Uh, <laughs> no, it's not. You get you get the view of the sunrise over the Grand Canyon. And that's uh, that's the coolest thing about that trip. It's just the sun cracks. You, you leave at that time, and then the sun is up over the Grand Canyon, and it's just... Well, I'm pretty confident that at uh, like seven o'clock or seven thirty tonight, when I'm going over the Grand Canyon, I'm not going to see the sunrise. So exactly. I land at eight thirty tonight. So you'll be drooling um, on yourself. Yeah. Wake up when the yeah <laughs> when the tires hit the ground. Lots going on. You know, tomorrow we've got a uh, we're at the Martin booth, just making sure everything's going to be okay for us to record our podcast there. Uh, you know, something we've never done, but I'm certainly not afraid of it. We're pretty self-contained when it comes to this podcast recording thing. And um, very much looking forward to having uh, Peter Morris and Chris Asen on Friday. That's going to be a super interesting and fun uh, podcast. More so for me, Henry, I know you're a little disadvantaged on this one because I believe you probably saw the booth and saw the show, but yes, um, you were not part of that company. So being on the inside, it's just, you know, it's really going to be fun talking about not only how big of a challenge it was based on everything, you know, all of the roadblocks that were thrown at us for that show, including budget. But, um, you know, one of the things I really want to get into is just using today's technology, how much easier and different it would be to do that show today. Like it, it would be, I wouldn't say it would be a breeze because there was still lots of moving parts, but it would certainly be a heck of a lot less of a, you know, technical challenge uh, than it was. But well, I mean, when you, when you think about it, you didn't even have the big giant automated lighting consoles out at that point, right? They were we just were using the squeak into the market. Do you remember the Martin 3032 controller with the trackball? Oh, my. That's how yes. we programmed this show. I mean, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, it was uh, actually I think the 3032 was a uh a desktop computer, like a PC piece of software, but it was still controlled via a mouse and clicks and all that kind of stuff. It was not a console. And um, the whole thing was running on SMPTE and stuff. So it was just, it was a massive undertaking. And um, we're going to try and keep Chris off of the uh, Jägermeister so that he can talk nicely about it and remember the good <laughs> things too. Um, but Chris and, and Noel and Paul Peliche and all of those guys, I remember just going through hell on this booth because, you know, just keeping everything running and, and dealing with the power problems we had and all the other problems we had. And, you know, the end result was beautiful. And those of you who've seen the YouTube video would probably agree. So... That's going to be fun. Um, I think what we've done is we've filled every podcast slot except for two. And those mm -hmm. two are going to be just kind of Henry and I walking through the show and going, oh, my God, I haven't seen that guy in 20 years. I absolutely want to get him or her or them on on the podcast. And so if you do see us walking around and you are interested in coming on the podcast, and most importantly, you have to be interesting. You have to have a story to tell that our audience is going to want to hear. And, uh, but just grab us and say, hey, you know, have you got a spot open? I'd love to come on. Um, but otherwise, I mean, we're full. We've got about 10 episodes already programmed and in the bag ready to, to record. So um, that's going to be fun and uh pretty yeah. hectic we are not bringing uh the 
uh, geezer's beer um, this no time. No gear beer. Uh, because what we found is that it's a bit of a pain in the ass, that the labels fall off. <laughs> and, you know, it was one of those great ideas that just didn't work out. So exactly. I'm sorry, folks, but there will be no gear beer this, this year. Uh, and, uh, but hopefully we'll have some water so you can drink water and maybe we'll, uh, we'll get a runner to go get us beers when we need to, but, um, looking forward to it. The show itself looks like LDI is, uh, you know, I've, I know I've poked fun at LDI in the past saying that they're always announcing this was our biggest show ever. And then you walk through the aisles and it didn't feel that way. Um, this year I've got a feeling and they've got a feeling that it is absolutely going to be the biggest show ever. And, you know, for some reason, I mean, there's just a, there's a buzz in the air this year for new product, for some technology that I'm really, really looking forward to seeing. And it just seems like it's going to be a little bit better. And, um, you know, our industry is doing so well and, and everyone's busy and there's so many shows going on and stuff, but it just feels like this is going to be a great show. I don't know if you, you get the same vibe. Well, I mean, you know, just in calling around and setting up my appointments, obviously to, you know, buy people coffee and things like that, tons of people coming out. Right. So my yeah. coffee schedule is also uh pretty darn jam. Awesome. Right? So yeah, kind of interesting. Bring right? your Starbucks card. Bringing my Starbucks card already. It's in my wallet already. Yeah. My boarding pass. Well, if you were hanging out with the mere peasants like myself and staying at that dumpy <laughs> hotel next door, there is a Starbucks right at the base of the elevator, you know, with a line about three and a half miles long. But, uh, but yeah, that's where I'll be getting my daily fix. Um, you know, one of the things that I've been watching recently and paying attention to, and I know you've probably got some gear things that you want to talk about, but... Um, I haven't done a huge amount of research on this, so I'm not going to have all the names down and stuff, but it just appears that all of a sudden, and maybe this happened a couple of years ago and I just wasn't paying attention, but it appears that follow spots have become this massively disruptive market all of a sudden. And mm -hmm. when I'm talking about disruptive, you know, it's everything from the light source itself being, uh, converting over to led now that leds, the packages are bright enough and, and just, you know, focused enough to be able to um, knock off some of these Xenon follow spots, which, you know, definitely needed to go. But um, this combination, like, you know, I was at Martin when I don't even remember what the product was called, but we had this following system and Wybron had the autopilot. And that was very early technology and it worked sometimes. But it was it was just not reliable or or solid enough to use on a real show for the most part. Like I think that's why Wybron really never got that far with the autopilot, um, and certainly the Martin system, which I can't even remember what the it track, was called. Track, it was called the TrackPod. I remember seeing. I think was it Peter Moore that did a show on a cruise ship with that, and you would start tracking the artist, and the artist would go back the other way. It would take a second or two to correct. <laughs> yeah, the lights would all right? shoot up into the ceiling or something. <laughs> Pretty wild. Right? When it failed, it failed badly. <laughs> you know, it just didn't yeah. look good when those things went crazy. But, um, you know, I guess maybe it was just not ready for prime time yet, the technology. But mm -hmm. now you've got all these different sort of follow me systems that are either coming out or out already. And, um, I've read about two or three different systems like that being used this year or being shown this year at LDI, which I'm, 
you know, I'm curious how the tech technology has changed. You know, I think back then it was, I don't remember if it was RF technology or if it was, uh, some of it was infrared. Yeah. And some of it was RF technology. Yeah. Right. I mean, just, so I don't know what has changed. You know, there's obviously a lot of, um, interference, a lot of different frequencies, a lot of fixtures and stuff moving around and, and noise and fog and everything else in a concert setting. Um, I think the Martin one was like this ultra high f- audio frequency was how it worked. That's right. And, um, it was, you know, driven crazy by all kinds of different things, you know, from the loud sound system to, you know, even lighting fixtures and stuff that were moving, but, um, the rats in the alley. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Or the, you know, screaming girls in the audience or whatever. Um, but then the other part of this disruptive market is that we are moving all the trust spots, you know, into the VOMs or backstage area or even trucks out in the parking lot. Um, yep. using the ground control robo spot. Um, I just saw another one too that, that is out there. So, um, you know, again, I mean, who knew one of sort of the most boring old technologies that we deal with on a daily basis, follow spots would become such a sought after, you know, uh, aggressively competitive, you know, disruptive mm-hmm. markets in, in lighting technology. I just think, you know, I mean, when you, when you really look at the follow spot per se, it has gone unchanged for, you know, when you go back to super troopers and, you know, the, the carbon arc follow spots, things like that, right? right. That technology minus some tweaks to the light sources is what gone unchanged for 40 or 50 years now. So now you're actually or seeing, more. yeah, I mean, it's just, so now people are catching up with it now, right? There's, um, Certainly, the you know what Robert Juliet does with their you know thumb dimmers on the side of the light, um, the, side yeah. of the follow spots are pretty cool. But uh, yeah, I mean, people are are now developing uh, this, I guess, in a new direction. So, yeah, uh, yeah. There you go. No and it, the weight. I think the weight savings is is huge, right? Right. Because you don't have a giant ballast that sit on the floor. Well, and so. again, I, I you know for sure we've talked about ground control and Robo Spot before, but um, to me, that's not just a you know, a cost savings, it's a convenience, it's a safety, uh, situation, mm-hmm. you know, getting those trust spot operators out of the rig is a really good thing for a lot of reasons, sight lines, just lots and lots of reasons. And so I just think that is, you know, sort of one of those dough technologies like, geez, you know, that was so obvious, mm-hmm. you know, why didn't we do that 20 years ago, as opposed to, you know, trying to get automated lights yeah. to follow people around uh, in a very automated way, you know, and then ETC has that system too that we talked about last week. That's pretty pretty ingenious as well. So, you know, it just seems like we're we're taking a big step right now, which is a very positive thing um, on follow yeah. spots, and uh, you know, it falls in line with a lot of the things that we're constantly talking about, where it's not always you know, more colors, more gobos, more this, more that. Sometimes it's just improving, you know, the, the, you know, sort of the core, um, functionality of setting something up, tearing it down, carrying it on the road, shipping it around, etc. You know, sometimes it's, it's not, um, you know, really advancing the technology. It's just making it more efficient in its own self. Mm-hmm. So what else you got? Absolutely. Well, let's see. So um, there's a new re- release of watch out software. So the watch out stuff is 
you know, it's video stitching software for lack of a better term. A lot, a lot, a lot of churches use this. Um, so they're not quite full blown media servers, uh, but it is a very popular budget friendly system. So I'm really, I mean, looking at popping by their booth and getting kind of the overview of that, what's new in, you know, in 6.5, how far it's, it's come along. So, uh, that's a pretty cool thing, actually. And, you know, again, it's one of those really, really popular things. Uh, Megalite, our good friend, uh, Guillermo Cabana, right? Yep. He's got a nice uh, little miniature automated uh, LED fixture, right? It's an 80-watt LED. So uh, very, very compact. It spins, it flips, it does a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, Guillermo and his brothers, they built a nice business for themselves over at Megalite and... Um, you know, more than anything, rather than just importing another load of Chinese, you know, regurgitated stuff, they actually have a design team that goes through stuff and go, hey, this is what our customers want. Your stuff is generally well thought out. So um, can't wait to see that fixture. Does, that was does cool. Guillermo still work with uh, Steve Talk and uh, Pearl River or no? I am not sure to tell you the truth. I think they have their own their own vendors. We, we're going to trap Guillermo one of these days and get him on a podcast. <laughs> and, uh, he's a character, so that would be a, kind of an interesting. Yeah, you know, that'd Steve be fun. is out and does. Yeah, you know, Steve Tolga is still doing a bunch of design work. He does a lot of stuff on LED power supplies uh, mm. these days and has some patented uh, his own patents on those things. So that's kind of cool. Right. Cool. Um, you know, another another must see obviously is the Astera booth. We talk about the Titan tubes quite a bit. Uh, they have some new uh, lighting control software out for iPad and iPhone and um, for Motorola Razor V3. So that'll be kind of interesting um, to see that. Just kidding about the Motorola Razor, right? Yeah, but, no, uh, nobody designs for that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, pretty kind of, uh, it's kind of interesting how you're able to just, you know, bring a big uh, color swatch up and just dial in your LED tubes by pushing your finger around on it. So, uh Pretty kind of uh, pretty cool there. So that's version eleven software. I know also there's one of your follow spot uh, systems in here. We won't talk about the radio technology stuff. Uh, Zach Track Smart. So this is the 3D tracking system. So you know again, sort of along the line of what you're talking about with the follow me systems from uh, follow spots. Uh, not familiar with this company at all. It's another one where it's a new product release. Uh, it's ZachTrack.com. Um, so we, you know, again, it's another one of those things where you swing by their booth and you learn about their products. Right. So that was kind of cool. Um, one of the more interesting products that I saw this morning is there's a company that has built fully redundant DMX, which is kind of interesting when you think about that, how you double up on DMX signal into a lighting fixture or a line of lighting fixtures and how that works. Right. So they guarantee like no data failures whatsoever in this. So I don't know how that works. It seems that they are driving DMX from both ends. So when you get down to the end, instead of putting a data terminator in, you actually have another LED uh, distribution module or an LED, uh, LED, sorry, DMX um, distribution amplifier. And uh, it drives it back in the other way through, I guess, the mail outlet. So it goes in in two directions which is kind of interesting. I, I, you know, does that short out? I don't know. I guess it doesn't. But Well, uh, also, you know, is that, are they fixing a problem that needs fixing or? Well, if you have a brick and a data line, if you have, you know, a string of eight lighting fixtures and it's hung 30 feet up in the rig and you, some dummy didn't plug in number four, 
and missed it or, you know, the plug wiggled out or whatever. Same thing's going to happen. You drive DMX in from the, well, if you, you're driving DMX in from the other end. Well, right? but it so still needs to get there. So if it hasn't gotten there, how's it going to drive it back? The, the link is, so the link, because this is all daisy chained together, the last in line gets another DMX distributor that drives it back. So if you lose the middle link, but my point is, if on. let's say we've got eight fixtures and the connection yeah. between four and five is broken. So that means Correct. six gets no power, seven gets no power, not power, but DMX, seven right. gets no DMX, eight gets no DMX, and the distrib- distribution box gets no DMX. Basically, no, it's, it's you're driving two DMX boxes, right, into the same series of fixtures, the way I'm seeing the diagram here, right? So you have your main traditional, like when you think about how you connect DMX up, it's traditional. You have your, you know, your broken link between four and five, but then on the other end where you normally put a data terminator, right, they actually have another DMX amplifier sitting on the other end of the fixture. So it drives it backwards into eight, seven, six, and right. Five. I get that. But, but where's it getting its signal from? Isn't it getting its signal from, from eight? Oh, so there's an, no, end, it's getting uh, it from the there's, console. there's a home run to that box. Correct. As well as to yeah. fixture number one. As, as well as to fixture number. So it's bi-directional. You're plugging in, in a row of eight fixtures. You're driving DMX signal into eight through one. And then the, the, the original set, which is one through eight. So there's actually two sets of D, uh, DMX signal going out. So if you break it in the middle, you don't lose the data. Sure sounds like so a lot what? of potential for problems to me. <laughs> <laughs> this thing scares the hell out of me. Okay, folks, let's let's give everyone a disclaimer. Skip. <laughs> but, yes. uh, here's our disclaimer. We are not in any way <laughs> suggesting that you use this crazy box that Henry's talking about right now. <laughs> Go check it out. If it sounds smart, come back and tell us, hey, that's a pretty cool idea. Uh, anyways, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, everybody's got their own spin on things, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I mean, there were, those were the last minute ads on the live design, you know, new product showcase, which I think makes it pretty efficient. You just kind of go, okay, I'm going to go see these guys, these guys, and these guys, you jot yeah. down in your notes and there you go. Well, and so, uh, you know, certainly our, our weekly conversation about the clay packy stilos. So, um, mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to actually seeing that thing in real life. You know, again, pictures, videos that I've seen, the, the most incredible thing, I guess, is because of the additive color mixing, colors on it are more vibrant and brighter than white. And mm-hmm. um, it really, like especially the reds and magentas, just look outrageous on this thing. You can see it for miles. It's so bright and so, you know, just clear and, and beautiful. I mean, you know, it's just stuff that I haven't seen, you know, from a lighting fixture, I guess. That's one of the questions I want to ask when you put a saturated in a saturated color in on that laser engine, how much of a decrease in, in output do you get? Cause when you put saturates in, and you know, traditional light paths, you get 60, 70, 80%, depending on how efficient the fixture is reductions in light output. Right. Huh. So how efficient is this and how hard does it punch through the, the, the filters, you know? So kind of interesting, right? Well, um, I don't know. Like, have we missed something? Is, isn't this, isn't it a red, green and a blue laser? Or are they all white lasers? I think I'm not they're sure. I thought they, I, I thought it was white, but I no, because it's additive. Out. It's, it's additive color mixing. It's not subtractive. So, you know, there, there shouldn't be filters. You should be using a red, uh, 
a red light engine that you are adding into the picture, not, not filtering something away. So I don't know. I mean, we'll check it out, but from what I've seen in color, it's brighter than it is in white, which, which would tell me that it's actually a colored, uh, light engine right at, yeah, right at the, right at the engine. It's that color, or, you know, maybe there's just a big red filter on the color and, you know, I don't know, but Anyways, it looks amazing. I'm looking forward to seeing it. And one of the cool things is Nick, who we've got on today from Fireplay, used uh, 200 of the fixtures on, um, oh God, what show was it? It was um, 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 the guy that my son loves like crazy and I'm not such a big Brian fan of. Leitch? No. No, no. He's the designer that, uh, uh, Post Malone, Posty Fest. Oh. They used uh, they used two hundred um, fixtures from PRG uh, on Posty Fest, and you know again I've seen images of it and videos. It's it's just crazy, crazy. So looking forward to talking to him about his experience and um, you know whether he intends to use them again. Like to me, this this fixture kind of goes beyond sort of a special. Like it's it's not mm-hmm. something that you use once and then go, oh, we've done it. You know, next. Uh, it's kind of like a Sharpie on steroids, you know, it's, it's just like a really, it's a new wrinkle that I think is going to be, uh, it's probably going to be overused for the first year or so, because everybody's going to want to try it. But then, um, I think it'll remain a staple and others like Like, it. Like, like you say, once approvals get done for this thing, when this finally does get approved and is mass marketed in the U S you're going to see this technology now hit, you know our industry in a very, very big way. So it's, yeah. uh, to well, be I know determined, right? Eric, but, uh, Eric Loder told us that elation has had a laser source fixture for a while. That's just kind of been shelved because of laser variances and all of these different mm-hmm. things. So anyways, let's, uh, let's, uh, so, you know, last, I, I just want to say to everyone, thank you. Like, uh, you know, this week alone, I think I've probably gotten 10 emails and calls from people just saying, oh my God, I love what you guys are doing. And, um, you know, I, I really like the format. I love listening to this thing while I'm driving or while I'm on my treadmill or while I'm whatever. Um, we really appreciate those comments and, and compliments and, you know, we're not doing this for stardom. Of course, we're doing this because these stories are fun and need to be told. And, uh, there was just an opening in the market to, to grab this and, and to tell the story. So we appreciate the, the kind comments and remarks very much. Keep them coming and also, you know, share the podcast. So, um, when you are in either iTunes or Google Play, there is a uh, an opportunity to share that podcast, to either put it on your Facebook or to share it with friends that you have who also listen to podcasts. But, you know, I, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, uh, a friend um, said to me, you know, I must have been living under a rock because I hadn't heard this thing at all. And now I'm binge listening. Um, you know, he says, I can't believe you guys have been doing this since last December and I'm just hearing it now. And now I'm binge listening to every episode. So, you know, it's fun and, uh, please share and, and help us, you know, get, get more listeners, get this out there. And that in turn helps us bring better sponsors, better guests and do more things like this LDI thing we're doing this week. So thanks for all your support. And, um, Henry, you got anything else? No, let's get Nick on. He's an interesting guy. His sets are really interesting too. So yeah, anxious yeah. to talk to this guy. 
Now I'm, I'm really excited about this one. So yeah, let's go ahead and grab them. How are you today? I'm great. You guys, we are great. We just did a little, uh, a little, uh, intro thing that we do every week where we talk about the goofy new gear that's coming out in the industry and just, uh, any crazy goings on. So just so you know, this is Marcel talking and we also have Henry here, which is my, I'm the one that talks less. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Hi, Henry. Henry's the one that talks less. <laughs> Jeez, I know there's a slam in there somewhere. So, Nick, we've uh, we've been uh, very much looking forward to to doing this with you. You're, um, you know, you're not only an interesting guy on your own, but uh, this fireplay thing. I've I've been reading about it and uh, trying to learn what I could prior to this podcast because I think it's a it's a really cool concept. So I want to get into that a little bit and talk about that. But, um, you know, first and foremost, we do appreciate you joining us today. And, uh, are you, are you home in, I think it's Vermont, right? I, I am home today. Yeah. Are you wow. going to LDI this week? I'm leaving tomorrow. Yeah. Ah, excellent. We're actually, we're actually, uh, involved in designing one of the booths as well. So we'll be there tomorrow. Oh, really? Which booth? Can you, can you the talk air, about Sorry? Sure, the Airtron booth? Oh, really? So, Cool. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Ayrton is a is a uh, is an interesting company. It is. Yeah. So. We we uh, we're very friendly with them, and we actually have Ivan, uh, the founder, on uh, on the podcast. I think on Saturday. Oh, great! So yeah, um, yeah that'll be fun. So yeah, yeah, we've had we've had some good success with you know they built some really nice LED profile fixtures, which yeah. we've had some great luck with, and obviously, you know, I've always been a fan of the Magic Dots and a lot of the stuff that they've been building. So yeah, it's a cool company. Well, and I've commented a lot on Ayrton as far as their. Um, I just think that since the beginning of that company, they've done an incredible job with uh, their demos, both trade shows and their their videos that they do as well so you know i'm really looking forward to seeing what you come up with because you know i know they take that stuff really seriously like their their video demos that they do when a new fixture comes out are just you know beyond what anybody's doing yeah yeah so good. And I, you know i i think it might have been I don't know how trade shows are normally approached because this is the first time we've done one, but they came to us and said, look, we need a six, seven minute long show in there and program it like you would a show with our fixtures. Let's not do a demo show. Let's, let's leave that to the sales guys, but let's show them off. So that's really that's what cool. we kind of put together. Very cool. Very cool. So what's the soundtrack? Just out of curiosity, is it techno? Is it rock? What is it? <laughs> it's a mixture of some of our clients actually. Oh, that's cool. Wow. Tie it all in. Some Very cool. Some of the big lighting moments that have kind of caused a stir throughout the last couple of years of the shows that we've done, we've kind of condensed them all into a soundtrack and added some other bits. So it's good. Yeah, very cool. So, um, you know, kind of starting from the beginning, uh, you know, how, how was it like what we tend to find every time we do this podcast, whether it's, you know, Peter Morse or it's, you know, a younger designer or whoever it is, everyone seems to come in either through being a, a DJ or a musician. So, um, which were you? Musician. Ah, there you go. Yeah. What, what did you play? I played the keyboards and piano. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, same way as everyone else we were in bands and we all realized that that wasn't what we wanted to do. 
Well, or or it wasn't what paid well was my situation. You yeah. know, I wanted to do yeah. it because I loved the party and I liked the attention from girls and all that stuff. But I wasn't so much into the hard work and and you know the starving to death. That that didn't appeal to me too much. But yeah, um, I, and I like the technology side of it as well. So right. for me, it kind of just fell into place that I moved away from it. But and, it's you know, it's so interesting that the piano. Just out of curiosity. Uh, I don't know. I always wanted to play from a little kid. That was just one of those things that I just decided I thought it was a, a cool thing to do. And eventually, after like years of nagging my parents, they bought me one. And That's I cool. Went from there. Sorry, are you one of these guys that when you're out on tour or something, you walk into the hotel lobby and you sit down and start playing some really nice piece so that everybody goes, ooh, you're so talented? <laughs> no, it's been years since I've probably played or practiced, so I, I need a good few years to brush back up on the skills. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, you know, I the piano's an amazing instrument, and it's it's one that you know I can kind of make some noise on. I'm a musician and, and uh, mm -hmm. you know, grew up, playing professionally first and literally the story I just told where I was starving to death and didn't like that so much. That was my story. And, and I just found my way into other parts of the business. But, um, I always wished I could play the piano better. I can just kind of walk up and hit a few chords, but I couldn't actually put something together that made any sense. That's for sure. So did you go to, you didn't, uh, go to technical like theater school or anything? No, it, it was an interest. So back to being a musician I, in the UK, you have something called sixth form college, which is two years after high school before you're 18. And then you're supposed to go to university or college as you'd call it here. And I went to this place and they had a theater department and I auditioned to be in the technical team. Actually, I auditioned to be the, the musical director and the piano player for the production, which was little shop of horrors. And, I ended up spending the two years of my college of that sixth form college in the theater department doing everything they needed. I rewired the place, put a new lighting rig in and a whole new sound system. And at the end of it, they tried to hire me to run it, which oh, was wow. weird. So that you weren't actually taking, you weren't taking the theater class though. You were, you were just, I didn't take the theater class. They oh, actually offered wild. to give me, to give me the, uh, so, you know, a couple of years after, they actually offered to give me the, the graduation and the certificate, but I said, no, I never took it, so oh, <laughs> I didn't wow. take it. Jeez. But that's kind of where I found out that there was more and kind of fell more into the technical side. Right. So, Nick, what, what year was that? Uh, 1996. 96, all right. So That's when I left there. So you leave, you leave college, and, and now you've got the theater bug. So what happened? Um, I was, I grew up in a town called Leeds, which is North of England. Yeah. Um, it has a really good, it's like Manchester. The, both of them had a really good musical scene, but it was small indie bands that were all trying to make it. So there wasn't much in terms of the technical side that could be done. Um, and you know, in the UK, if you want to get into theater or you want to get into music or, or something like that, it has to be London. So I kind of said, I'm not going to go to university. I'm not going to go to college. I'm going to go down to London. I'm going to try and see what I can get into. And uh, I kind of worked in little venues and anything I could get, really sound lighting. Uh, there wasn't really video back then, and kind of took my took every opportunity that came my way and worked in all these little theaters and all the clubs and you know nothing really fancy at that point. And kind of spent I spent about a year and a half just 
trying to find work and doing anything that anyone would throw at me. And one day I was working at a place called the Stratford Rex, which was a massive old 3000 capacity theater, but it was in a really bad part of town and no one really went there apart from uh, the odd music video or like a church service or a, a club that ran every Friday night. And um, Brian Leach is a big designer that a lot of people here or a lot of people grew up with. Uh, walked in there one day and said, hey, I've just taken over the lighting rig. Uh, do you want to give me a hand to install it? And I met him and kind of that's where my career took off. Wow. What a what a chance meeting that was, huh? Because, you know, I've read a lot about, you know, what, what he's meant to your career and, and uh, perhaps you'll tell us a little bit more about that. But it's amazing how, you know, something you know, that at the time probably didn't seem like that big of a deal has really shaped your career. It wasn't. And I didn't really realize who he was or what it was because back then there was no kind of internet you could jump on and find out what this guy was right. up to and what he was doing. And We actually had like, privacy. Yeah, <laughs> there, yeah. there was this weird thing called privacy back then. But it, it was almost <laughs> like, I'm going to bring in this new gear. Do you want to help me? And you'll learn some stuff doing it. I was like, absolutely. I'd love to. And, you know, it was that attitude that, a couple of weeks later, I get a phone call from him and he said, hey, so my house LDs just left the Kentish Town Forum. Uh, can you be the new house LD? You kind of need to get here right now. And I said, okay. I had no idea what I was getting into. I'd never done anything at that size. And I walked in the door. The old guy handed me a harness and a plot and a bunch of gels and said, here you go. And then left. That's crazy. <laughs> that is crazy. And, and uh, you know, the, the forum at that time was... This, you know, one of the massive uh, venues in London. So it was the Forum, the Astoria, and and places like that. And uh, all the big bands were coming through there. So I kind of got in the harness, climbed up the rig, figured out how to gel something while, and focus something while there was a big LD telling me what to do and ended up spending two years there as the house LD. And we saw all kinds of clients, like the biggest bands, all from all over the world would come through there and the biggest LDs. And I just sat and watched and took in what they were saying and saw the things that worked and saw the things that didn't saw the attitudes of the people that were doing really well and how to approach people and how to deal with the industry. And that was kind of, that was definitely where I learned most of what I did. And Brian was in and out and he was a big part of that. And it, so it was one of those, Nick, you, you kind of answered my next question, but how long did it take you, like, you know, from getting the keys thrown in your hand in a pile of gels, how long did it take you to learn the rig, to get really proficient at it? Because I'm sure at that point you're overwhelmed, right? Yeah. At, uh, at what, you, what you have in front of you. How long did it take you to really know the house rig? Well, the house rig was uh, like 50 bars of six and um, mm -hmm. 10 VL5s. So it wasn't that complicated. Um, the fixing it was complicated because I had no idea what a VL5 was or how the very, the Series 200 system worked or anything like that. And that was just a, hey, how do I do this? And, you know, calling people and asking people and as people came through. I would say it took a good six months to kind of really figure out things, but then you're always learning. So a different LD comes through and he does a really weird patch of the, of the conventionals and changes the entire look of the rig. And you're like, oh shit, how did he do that? And it's just going back and looking at, you know, not doing the same symmetrical patch that everyone does. And 
moving some bars of six around a little bit or raking the trusses. It was, but what, it a, was a <clears throat> what a great opportunity when, you know, becoming like a house LD at, uh, at a venue like that where all the main acts are coming through and you get to meet everyone. And, and, you know, it's, it's almost like a, uh, you know, a job interview with potential future employers every time a, yeah. a new act comes through. And, you know, remarkably you were just mentioning Ayrton and I know that, uh, uh, Chris used to be, where was he? He was at the hard rock in Vegas. Um, yeah. and is now like the designer relations guy for Ayrton, uh, because, in that role, you just meet everyone, you know, every touring LD, you know, every manager, you know, every production manager. So it's just a really great opportunity to meet a lot of people. Yeah, it is. And, you know, some days we just fly our rig out and this incredible new technology rig would come in there and you'd get to ask questions and see what it did and understand right. what different fixtures did. And, you know, like you said, meet the people. It was a lot of this industry is about, uh, who you know, rather than, you know, what you can actually do. And you learn that really quickly in that position. And then, uh, so I think it was Brian who kind of gave you your first touring gig too, right? He did. Um, it started a gig at the forum. It was a band called Star Sailor. And uh, it was for EMI Records. And at that point, EMI Records had just signed uh, these guys and, they thought they were going to be the biggest thing in the world. And Brian said, here you go. Why don't you have a go at designing? They're going to go on a European tour. It's a trailer behind a bus. You can have whatever you want that fits in it. Off you go. And uh, that was it. I did. I think I did six months out in Germany almost exclusively, but then the rest of Europe do. And that was my first tour. But in um, a sense, you really had no idea what you were doing on a tour, right? No. Like you'd never done it. Uh, no, it was, it was piecing together everything I'd seen in a house venue. And, you know, if I didn't understand something, asking Brian what he thought and putting some fixtures in, in what I thought was the right place. And, and ultimately, Brian's genius was that he knew where to put lights. You know, he, he wasn't one of those LDs that would just put millions of lights on a drawing. He put every light in a place that he knew what to do with it. And that's why his designs were so incredible. And that's what I learned from him is I'd send him something that I thought was a cool idea. And he'd be like, no, just move these to here and here. And this is why. And, you know, that's, I ended up with a rig that came out of a trailer, could integrate with a house rig, whatever it was in uh, any of these little venues from, you know, 200 capacity clubs to 5,000 capacity, you know, Amsterdam Paradiso and stuff like that. Right. Right. And then from Star Sailor, you, you transitioned to another act that I think he, uh, Brian brought you into again, right? Which was... Uh, was There was quite a lot of acts around that time. That there was, it was definitely, there was a good bunch of designers and crew that Brian had. It was a very good year and a very good time at his company. And there was a lot of really great people. All of them are still working you know, high level gigs in this industry. Mm -hmm. um, and he put us all together. So there was a lots of one-offs and record company things and festivals that we were doing. And, um, you know, he, he, one of his big things was this tour called the, uh, NME tour. And in the UK, they, they take four of the acts that they thought were going to break or were just about to break and do a tour around universities in the UK. And we all did that. Um, it was a, it was his, probably one of his biggest kind of UK tours at that point that wasn't like the Manix or something like that. Right. And, and the first act on the bill there was Coldplay. So, really? Uh, yeah. 
no one really knew who they were. They were playing to empty room, you know, empty rooms. There was there was no one kind of coming to see it. And it's obviously pre pre yellow, right? It was pre yellow, um, and it was uh, interestingly, it was the same label that had Star Sailor, and I was still working on Star Sailor at the time. And the record company was all in on Star Sailor, and like, yeah, Coldplay will never go anywhere, right? And they never gave them the time. It's crazy. Well, and in the beginning, they were almost being written off as like a, a U2 copy band. Um, there was so many rumors. And, you know, Brian was the one, again, his other talent was spotting people that were going to make it. And he went all in on Coldplay and said, these guys are going to be big. Let's give them everything they need to make their shows amazing. And he did the first tour that they did and the first promo tour they did. And it got to a... Um, it got to a Christmas show in the forum again. So we're back to the forum, but it got to the Christmas show in the forum that he did just as yellow was breaking where everyone understood what they had. Yeah. And, uh, Brian, you know, trying to run a business and lots of other apps was like, this is a little bit big, too big for just me. Would you like, you know, I'd really like you to come and help. So that's, that was the break onto Coldplay. And, um, wow. So just, so just out of curiosity, I mean, they're they're first up in a row of four, right? Like you're saying, they're playing to an empty house. How did you, you know, I've always been really interested how LDs form relationships with actually the band members and things like that. So, I mean, can you describe some of those early meetings, how you kind of synced up with them and, you know, talked about what their look was going to be like? Can you kind of well, enlighten so, some of the listeners? Yeah. So, I mean, back then, it, there wasn't too much to what you could do in a show. It was... There wasn't the technology of video. There wasn't the technology of, no, no one really did big lights, big sets. It was all about what you did with the lighting. So, you know, you would have, Brian had the conversation with Coldplay at the start. And then um, obviously as that relationship developed, I got more and more involved. But it literally was sitting in a room with the guys and just saying, hey, we could do a really red strobey look for this. And maybe if we move into this, it's this. And a lot of the times we didn't have big long production rehearsal times either. We'd load in the day of the first show and I'd sit there and program a whole bunch of stuff onto a page and almost bust through the first show and they would tell me what they liked and what they didn't. And it would evolve over the first few shows. Interesting. Um, it was a very different process to what we have now where everything has to be programmed and synced and lots of people like to time code it. This, this was all live and, you know, seeing what worked in front of a crowd, seeing what didn't. Very dynamic. Know, and, and evolving with it. Yeah. When they're they they evolved into such a great live act, you know I've seen I've seen Coldplay multiple times, and each time I mean you know Chris is is such an incredible, uh, you know he's kind of geeky and and introverted in a sense, and but he's such a great frontman and he's so funny and entertaining, and just really gets the audience into the show. And that was one of the things, like back in one of those early meetings, it stood out really quickly that Chris was a genius of, yeah. in terms of what his band was going to do. Because some of the ideas that we went on to develop that came into the show that we kind of thought were a little bit crazy um, turned out to be the hits and to be the things, you know, the, the, the massive yellow balloons that used to drop from the sky. That yeah. was all Chris. Yeah. Yeah, that was you a know, really I need cool to one. bring something to, to this moment. How about, and it was you know, people weren't really doing gags. They were just standing on a stage and playing. And yeah. He was one of those guys that was pushing it and saying, well, you know, what if we do a B stage in the middle of the crowd and I run out to it? That was, that came from him. Yeah. Now people all over the place do it. But That's that was so his, cool. 
What about, and I may be stepping into a pile of poop here, I'm not sure, but were you involved in the, um, the, you know, sort of iconic look of the Element Labs tubes uh, as the... Yes, the speed of sound video. Yeah. I mean, that to me changed the look of, of everything for a long time, you know, I mean, and even today, probably, you know, that, that video and then sort of the tour that followed to me was, was really a game changer. Yeah. I, I actually wasn't involved in that one. That was pitched at them by the record company. But I see. when we saw the treatment, it was like, yes, this is exactly what you have to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, it, that I, was cool. I agree. It was, it was like insane. Yeah. Well, and God knows how many tens of thousands of Element Labs uh, VersaTubes were sold, you know, after just that one video. I mean, yeah. unreal. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, the reason we got to that point is they were always very um, on board with when we pitched ideas of new technology and doing different things and like trying to pave the way to do things first. Uh, the band were always on board and they really liked it. So, you know, let, let's go back to the tour in 2002 that they did. That was actually one of the very first tours that ever used a media server. Um, really? It was, it was a re media server called the Radlight. And it was a really obscure little Windows box that worked now and again. But when we kind of, we, we found it on the trade floor at Plaza, me and Brian were walking around and it was perched off to the side of the Avalites booth, I think. And there was a, a guy there kind of, no one was going near him and he was pitching this idea of the lighting console being out of control, like almost like gifts at that point. Hmm. And we kind of honed in and we said, well, we'd love to do this. And uh, probably six months later, we'd worked with him enough to do that Coldplay tour, which had those four portrait screens at the back with the, yeah. you know, security cameras that came through it. Yeah. That was the first tour that did a media server. Oh, that's very so, interesting. I didn't know that. Incredible. I yeah. think, uh, is Rad like, is Radlight still in business these days? I haven't heard anything about them in a long time. Did they morph into another company? Do you know? No, Simon actually turned into a yoga instructor. So <laughs> I think he's. <laughs> I think so crazy nice that thing a related and... industry. Yeah, very yeah. natural transition. I can see it. it makes perfect sense. I, I mean, I the stuff that he was doing was way ahead of everyone, everyone else. But with that also comes the fact that, you know, we're using these computers that aren't really made to do streaming video through them at that point and mm. maxing them out to do a live show. There was always problems. So, you know, I it's, understand the stress level. There. It's very strange how much technology there is in this country, in the United States. But yet when you think about it, media servers in general seem to come from England. Mm -hmm. Most of them. I mean, you know, disguise yeah. obviously is, is UK based. Um, but it well, just Richard seems Blaisdell, like, right? yeah. it seems like yeah. so much of that stuff comes from Europe and I wonder why, I don't know. I just never I really realized. Either. Yeah. I think you were like, also the first LD that I ever saw to use SGM stuff. Yes. I the, think we did too. I think they were the Giotto 300s or something. And cause I the remember 400 that. Spots. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah. Giotto 400. And I, I just remember that spec kind of running around this country and, and everybody going, where do you get them? I don't know. Where do you get them? I don't know. <laughs> Who's got them? I don't know. Nobody really had those fixtures at the time. And uh, so why was that? Like, where, where'd that come from? Was it just something that you saw over in Europe and went, yeah, I really like this light. Let's use it. 
So no, there's a there's an interesting thing that I go through now and again that all the manufacturers are kind of aware of. And whenever we're about to do a big tour, I ask them all to send, you know, what have you got? What's new? Uh, you know, what's cool? And instead of seeing it in a trade show environment where you know there's lots of light and pollution or something like that, we go to a warehouse. We hang them on a truss. We put a couple of fixtures that are known to me and known to the guys that I work with next to them and fill the room with smoke and play with them and see what they actually do. And that's where the job came from. We, we, we did that. We put it up in a warehouse next to the VLs that we've been using and the, you know, the Martin stuff that we had and those things kicked ass. Yeah. And so we spec them. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I just remember so was seeing it image that. quality or what was it? I'm just dying to know now. That's that's kind of a big leap, right? Was it? It was. It was white because they were quite small and light. It was the fact that they had really good color mixing where a lot of things were still color wheel. And it was also that they were as bright. They were a 400 watt fixture, but they were as bright as the 700 watt stuff that we were being pitched by Martin and stuff like that. And they were actually the same price. So uh one of the things that we do and it's evolved a lot that is if you're going to ask a vendor to buy some equipment for a tour that you know they're going to have to be able to use it in the future and make money from it and not lose money so we're kind of also financially aware of what we're asking to do too because if you know if you go and ask for 200 brand new lights it's hard for everyone to pay for that right well yeah um, and there there was definitely a period of time probably late 90s early 2000s when as an industry, we got a little bit irresponsible and, you know, kind mm -hmm. of forcing fixtures down uh, lighting companies' throats in a pretty big way where, you know, you couldn't sustain it. Like, you know, you're giving them one tour, they're buying a million dollars worth of lights for one tour, and then they don't get specced again. Or, yeah. you know, it just gets pushed further back into the shop, and that's a loser. You know, you need yeah. to get a couple years out of a, out of a fixture or else it's a loser. So, then, you know, come to today, uh, my design philosophy is, is kind of, I know what a VL3000 does. It's an old light. Every company in the world's paid for it a million times over, but it's still hard to find things that the other brand new lights do that that thing doesn't. Obviously, right. you know, 20% of the lights that we spec on something might be brand new right? Uh, and have a reason to spec them. But for the workhorse stuff and the spot stuff, a lot of the times I still default back to the older stuff and it helps everyone. It helps the vendors. It helps the artists because ultimately we can do more stuff for the price that for the budget they have. Yeah. And, and everyone's, everyone kind of wins in that way. Well, that's obviously not the manufacturers. That's way too sensible, Nick. <laughs> and you're going to have to take this back what you're talking about right now, because it's <laughs> making way too much sense, you know, and, it's funny, but on uh, on Sunday, I don't know if you know Pat Dearson, Patrick Dearson, but I do. Um, yeah. Patrick is going to be on the podcast on Sunday, uh, and um, the the sort of title of of his podcast is the the business of design versus the art of design, <clears throat> yeah. and um, you know I think that that's sort of what happened is is maybe we got a little crazy where you know, artists just had to have exactly these things and it didn't pay any attention to what was going to allow, you know, that lighting company, the rental company to sustain their business and be profitable and come out of that deal alive. And so mm -hmm. again, you know, a typical lighting company would have, instead of having a hundred of one light, they would have 10 of each. And mm -hmm. that didn't make any sense. 
So yeah. um, I think we're we've definitely because of attitudes like yours and and that type of philosophy where you know these are tools. I mean, you know, you don't have to have the same tool for for every single job, right? And yeah. so um, and you also don't have to have the latest thing that just came out yesterday for every job. Uh, where, you know, like you said, if you're really comfortable and you've used the VL 3000s forever and you know what they do and you know that shops have them. And by the way, on the used market, you can access them pretty cheap now too. But, um, you know, why not? I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's bizarre how quickly we move on from things these days. We're a little spoiled. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there has to be a good reason for me to to say, and I think it's good for the manufacturers too. So they're not just doing versions of other people's lights or, right. you know, Me another too. version of the same light they had last year. That's just a bit brighter. It's like, well, do we actually need the extra brightness? Why don't we put all that effort into, you know, innovating and coming up with something that's actually really new. So I will spec it all. Yeah. And, and I think that's where we lost a little bit of, you know, the old spirit of let's come up with something really new. And especially with led, there's, thousands of version of exactly the same thing. Yeah, it's true. Well, and it's, it's weird. And we've talked about this before, but it used to be where you kind of grabbed, you know, a, a hard edge from one company and a wash from another company and a beam from another company. You were, you were picking lights because each company had a certain expertise Mm -hmm. and now they all just kind of have, you know, a pretty similar lineup. Like everybody's yeah. got a framing light, everybody's got a, a spot, everybody's got a wash, everybody's got a beam, everybody's got, you know, whatever. A and beam wash, yeah. So now, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. the relationship has become much more important to where, you know, designers are going to have their favorite companies that they trust or, or you know, that they like to work with. Um, but still, it comes down to what's the rental company got in stock that, you know, will fit our budget yeah. better. You know, if you can yeah, get two lights for the price of one and and do the show that you want without breaking your client's budget, um, everybody wins, right? Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the plots we send out, especially for the stuff that's got to hit a certain budget, it's like we, we want a 1,200-watt spot. What do you have? Ah, that's good. Yeah, that's really good. You know? So lighting so companies then, love you. Yeah, and also it, it means that the vendors can fairly bid because instead of saying, well, we don't have this, will you accept a substitution? They say, okay, cool. This is what we have for 1200s. Which yeah. one do you want? Yeah. And it kind of, and it kind of takes the, the, the kind of manufacturer and brand thing out of it a little bit and yeah. gives us, gives us a lot of choices and opportunities. And we can pick, again, we can put all the lights in a room and see, oh, well, this one works and everything does the thing we want it to do. Of course, we'll take that. Again, Nick, this is way too sensible. I mean, we, we just might have to stop and, and restart this whole podcast because that's just, you know, you're blowing my mind right now. <laughs> so, I'm sorry we distracted you from why we picked the SGM. So that's yeah. why we picked the SGM. It was the right light at the right time for the, for the eyes. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I just, I don't even know why that popped in my head, but I remembered that, uh, you know, God, I don't know. It was the early 2000s, I guess. But I remember mm-hmm. uh, the SGM Giotto Spot 400 and just kind of going, huh? <laughs> you know, I've never even seen this thing on on uh, on a show over here, a tour spec or, or you know. So uh, it just kind of came out of left field and the show looked amazing. So, you know, it was the right, like you said, the right tool for the right job at that point. Um, yeah, and then they, then they tried to create a wash and it wasn't as good. So we went to a different company. Right. 
So, you know, Coldplay, just to kind of close that chapter, so you kind of rode that from pre-yellow in clubs all the way to, you know, basically like stadium shows, right? Yeah, I, I, it was about eight years, so. Damn. Uh, seven, eight years. Yeah. Three different tours that I was in, a part of. And you were designing, directing, programming, you were doing it all, or? The first tour was um, mainly Brian, who, and I kind of came in as, um, I kind of came in with him as, I went and did all the promo stuff, so we were taking a few lights into clubs into, around the U.S. and playing right. in front of two, three hundred people. Uh, because he couldn't, you know, he couldn't spend the time to travel the U.S. for eight months. Right. And then uh, the second tour, Brian actually programmed. Oh, Brian actually programmed and operated the lights, and I did the media service. Um, huh. And then that progressed into the fact that we put everything onto one console because again the tour was going long. And the guys did almost three hundred dates in uh, two hundred and sixty dates in one of those first tours. Right. So that was a long tour. It was two and a half years of someone's Jeez, life. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, at some point Brian had to jump off that and I took over everything. And then by the time we got to um, the last one, which was, I think it was the X and Y tour um, or the Russia blood to the head or even twisted logic. And no, twisted logic was the last one. Sorry. And I was, I was the lead designer on it and Brian was there for support because we'd moved into that time and everything had shifted. And I was the guy that was on the road and the guys knew and could talk about with, for ideas and I could present them. Very cool. Yeah. And so the most, most important question is, did you get to hang out with Chris's wife at front of house? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's where she used to watch it from. Yeah. 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 That was, uh, that was cool. I mean, I guess if you become a superstar, that's what you got to do, right? Is marry a, a movie star. I mean, those guys they're really nice guys it was always like being part of a family and yeah they treated everyone on tour so well that sometimes there was not much of a separation between band and crew and it seemed uh, like that you know it seemed like that. yeah especially in the early days everyone would stay at the same hotels there'd always be crew parties and drinks and you know people would hang out together so it, it was a really nice vibe and it was it was really well done by those guys. Well, it's funny, you, you, I read an article somewhere, um, that you're working with James Taylor and I was involved with a couple James Taylor tours, providing some lighting. And I got the same vibe from James Taylor where, you know, crew and band and everyone stayed in the same hotels and, um, you know, it, it just seemed like a similar sort of approach. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the artists uh, have been around for a, a long time, and a lot of the really big artists—it's—it's it's exactly the same. Yeah, you know, they—they they understand the crew morale is huge. It takes an army to put these shows on, and everyone has to be behind it some days to, to execute it and do it. So, right, I—I I don't think there's not many tours or not many artists that we work with that don't have the same attitude towards everyone that's working and part of their team. Yeah, the diva like, thing—the really, diva thing is no really fun. Lucky. No, the divas thing. No, and to be honest, I've never really experienced much of that, which That's is cool. good. I think I think a lot of that comes from, uh, you know, press and people kind of blowing it out of proportions. Most people, I would say, ninety nine percent of the people I've worked with, are actually as crazy as some people think they are. The reason they're crazy is they know what they want and they're they're pretty genius in their vision. Right. 
sometimes sometimes it's about finding the best version of their vision and making that the best you can as a designer yeah yeah well that's it right so um brian brian obviously was was you know instrumental in your career and and obviously you know was huge to you and a mentor of sorts i guess and um he passed away this year right yeah he did yeah so i'm i'm sure that you know that's been devastating to you and and to those around you but um you know i don't honestly know that much about him other than uh everyone that i've ever talked to about brian and i think i met him once or maybe twice when i was with martin um, but you know, everyone says, you know, the guy's just a genius. He's one of those guys that you don't question him. <laughs> you know, he's, if he says, this is how we should do it, he's probably right. And you can do your best to try and, you know, find a better way, but you're going to end up right back doing it his way. Yeah. I think the key thing about Brian is he was that he was a mentor to hundreds of people and he trusted people and he saw the best in young talent and he saw the best in what people were doing. And instead of him sat there saying, well, I'm going to build my empire and I'm going to be the big LD, he gave everyone opportunities and he was happy to do that. That I think that's his legacy that, you know, every big tour that's out there right now probably has one person or two people that have come from, uh, Brian Stein. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. There are LDs around the world that are doing the biggest shows in the world. Uh, All the best crew chiefs have come from working with Brian. It's, it's one of those things that, when you start talking about it, that's what he did. You know, he, he was a great LD, but more he trusted the people that he found and the people that he kind of brought into the family and he, he gave them the wings to go and succeed. That's really, really cool. Well, he's obviously a great loss. Um, and mm-hmm. he wasn't old either, right? He was in his sixties, I think. Yeah. He, he battled cancer for a good few years. Yeah. Well, that's it's too bad. So Nick, it, it- at this point, I was reading that, you know, when you when you started to think about getting off of the road, you were married at that point and you had a child, you know, on the way. Right. Obviously, you know, the touring life, like you said, you know, what, 265, 260 dates in a year. That doesn't lend itself to being married really well, unless, of course, your wife is standing next to you. But can you explain a little bit about, you know, uh, with, without getting too personal, how those conversations went with you and your wife and when you decided to kind of transition and go, hey, I got to be home more for my kid. Well, it, it's one of those things where I think there are two types of people. There, There's a type that loves touring and will always do it um, forever because, because as you guys know, being on tour is a very different thing. It's not like any other job out there. You're almost a rock star without having to deal with all the press and PR and the crap that comes with it. So, you know, you travel the world, you stay in the best hotels, you eat at the best restaurants, you do these amazing shows, you meet tons of people. It's almost like the rock star lifestyle without being, having to be the rock star and all the pressure that comes with that. So, um, there's a point where I think, uh, I did from starting Coldplay to getting, to the end of where I thought it was time to get up the road. It, it was a good sort of 10 years straight of me touring al- almost without a home. Um, there was, I think there was five years where I didn't have anywhere to stay. I just went from tour to tour and would just continue the tour. And at the point you're talking about, it was okay, I'm done. 
I think I've seen everywhere. I've done everywhere. <laughs> it, it's almost time to settle down and and to try and do this without you know this because I I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. I've seen a lot of people that have done that, and I see where they're at. And you get hooked on it, and it's very hard to leave. And I think I made the conscious decision and sat down with. I think it was to meet soon to be wife and said, look, I, I'm going to figure out a way to not tour as much and to spend more time at home. And, and this is what I want to do. So it, it wasn't really, um, an option of her persuading me. It was, it was a time for me to do that too. So was, um, was it just like a bucket list thing or did you have an epiphany at some point? So I think it was just, like just an exhaustion, <laughs> exhaustion thing. Yeah, I'm you, know, done. you get to the, you get to the end of one of these big tours and you're like, okay, cool. What's the next one? And there was a point where I'm like, I'm just so tired. I think it, it's time to sit back and reevaluate and come up with what's important. Right. Did, did Brian play a role in that as well? Cause Brian kind of did the same thing, right? Like Brian sort of passed the baton to younger guys like yourself and said, here, you go out and do the Coldplay tour of America you go be the rock star with the band and everything else. I'll sit back here. Was it? I think he did. He did in the back of my mind, definitely. And uh, it was really that. It was about, okay, you know, I, I, I am getting older. I, I don't want to have to get out of a tour bus at 6 a.m. every morning and, and do that kind of stuff. That's the stuff that you don't talk about. And it's like, I need, and exactly, I need to find people that can do this stuff. And, work to the standard that I've been delivering to my clients and the clients be comfortable that these guys and girls are taking it on and, and doing that same job and not have to have Nick around at every show and, and be okay with that. So that um, was what about 10 years ago or something when you yeah, made that, that move? Was about 10 years ago. And so fireplay, you know, to yeah. me, you know, I've, I've read a few, sort of interviews and articles and things trying to learn as much as I can about it. And I'm a bit of a business geek. You know, I love a good business model. I love a good business plan. I love, you know, entrepreneurs and, and just entrepreneurial ideas. To me, this was a very entrepreneurial idea. It was basically, you know, let's, let's, you know, pair together some disciplines. Let's bring in some investment. Let's bring in a marketing guru and let's do this properly. And, so, you know, how did that all come about? Like, where did the idea come from and how did you decide to pull it together? So it's a long story. Um, it, it, it happened once getting off the road, it worked, you know, me being at home for most of the year and just designing things and sending it away. It was actually kind of cool and it was working and I could pick and choose what I wanted to do. And at that time, a lot of, um, the light designers and, and the kind of creatives in the world started to pick up agents um, to try and help them. You know, obviously the music world was getting a lot more professional and um, a lot of legal and insurance things were coming in. So the agents helped with that. And probably about five years ago, um, the agent they had sat down and said, look, this is what we're trying to do. There's a few clients involved. We want to do this. And we think this is the right way to push the industry. And I didn't really agree. I didn't think that the models that they and the ideas that they were trying to push on, on people were the right thing. And we were in a time where, um, you know, the whole music industry and the record company and, and everyone was kind of figuring out what to do because 
iTunes had come along and Napster and that whole, you know, we're going to tour with unlimited budget and do whatever it takes to sell albums had completely reversed. And it was like, well, now there's no money in albums. How the hell do we make money? And I kind of saw the opportunity to say, well, why don't we help make the tour the, the reason that you guys make money? You know, how, how can we help to do the production so that, you know, we're not spending so much money that you come back off tour having to write a check and you're not making money from the album and right. doing it here. And I think I spent a whole year trying to figure out and write a business plan. Like you said, it, it's not an easy thing to do because there are a lot of little pieces that come in and out. And it's also very hard to compete in a world where most of the designers that work on these shows are guys sat at kitchen tables with a laptop. And so they don't have overhead and they don't have to have massive insurance and they don't have to have all, all of this kind of stuff. So I, I think, you know, I wrote a business plan over a year and I started talking to people about it, you know, in the industry that did it and people that might want to get involved. And probably at the end of the second year of talking or the second year of writing this thing and talking to the right people, someone came, like two people came up to me and said, well, we'll invest in this. We believe in it. We think it's good for the industry and we think it's good for, um, you know, bring uh, bringing new talent into it and you know paving a way to simplify things and also make it more you know professionalize it as well hmm. so that that's really how it came about is me not really liking one way that everyone thought the business was going to go and i said well i think i've got an idea to do something different and i've always been the one never to take the easiest way and to try and take the best way right and so it did take a lot of time and me learning a lot of things about business and economics and finance and investment and legal and, and insurance. But I think, you know, two and a half years ago when we, we kind of launched this thing, we didn't know if it would work and we didn't know if people would be into saying, okay, cool. We'll just hire you to deal with it. And I think it was the right timing. And I think it was the right, few first few clients that we had that really embraced it and ran with it and proved that what we were doing could really work that made it successful so is fireplay is it a, a collective or is it a like a true partnership with where everybody's all in it's so fireplay is is a company it's a corporation um it's a brand so our idea isn't to build any single person here. It, it's to build the brand. Like we want to build a company in the entertainment industry. That's a trusted brand that people can go to, not just the clients, but other designers can come to and feel like we're not going to try and take over their work, but to be able to offer the services that they can't so that they're completing everything for their clients. And that's why we didn't want to do a collective or a partnership or anything like that, because all of a sudden it automatically becomes, well, these are the guys that own it. Right. So, so we, we, you know, there's a few key people now and over the last year we've changed around who those people are because we've learned what we needed and what worked and what didn't and where the right direction was to go. So having the structure where it is a corporation and people work for that corporation gives us the flexibility for to try people and to see if it works and to find the right uh, kind of DNA of the company. And I'm really excited with where we are right now because we've got some incredible people here and the synergy inside the company is amazing. We do like uh, all company calls to talk through some projects and it's just like the most creative thing you'll ever hear, but then someone brings it back into the business side and everyone agrees. So it's, it's like this collection of 
amazing talent that you can't really access if you're just hiring one person. Right. And the leadership of the company, is it is it like a traditional company where someone's a CEO, someone's a COO, someone's a whatever? Yeah, because we've got investment, we have to be traditional. And do those roles yeah. stay the same though? Like, you know, the reason I'm asking is, you know, I'm not a huge fan of, of collectives, but mm-hmm. um, Light Switch, John Featherstone, is, um, you know, they're a collective. And one of the things I thought was super interesting, and I don't know if I love it or hate it, I haven't decided yet, but they, on an annual basis, they rotate out the CEO. And so the position basically, or president, I'm not sure, I forget what the role was exactly, but, or the title, but they rotate that person out every year and it keeps it from becoming any kind of a weird hierarchical thing. Um, it keeps the attitudes down, but it also keeps things fresh, you know, because with every new leader comes a new set of ideas or, uh, approaches or direction or whatever. Um, so in your business, like I assume you're the CEO and how do you deal with that kind of a thing? So for example, like if you've got a lighting person and I don't remember the exact disciplines that your partnership sort of covers, but if you've got five or six different disciplines, wouldn't someone in one of the other disciplines want an opportunity to lead from that discipline? If that makes any sense. Yeah, and I, I, I completely think that that's uh, an amazing way of doing it. And we do do some, you know, so I'm very conscious of that. And we are as a company very conscious of that, that if one person's leading a creative company, then they'll always put their stamp on something. Right. So we're very, we're, as much as it's a, a corporate structure, into, in really the, the core group of people that come in and out do change frequently and on project by project as well. Um, we never really have the same team that does, does a project. Um, you know, one of the things we really like to be is collaborative. So, you know, for example, uh, a project comes to us who needs a creative director. We'll find the right creative director for the client and us to lead that project who we may hire or the client may hire. Um, but I think, but I think that, you know, creative directors always go a certain way. And they have their stamp and, you know, sometimes it's not the right thing for an act. And so we do it with creative directors. Sometimes, you know, I'm not the lighting designer on a project and we'll bring someone else in. There's something that we're working on right now where um, I, I'm not the lighting designer and we brought someone in that was a lot more fitting for the role. And so if, if, I, was example, to, if I was to read about like Justin Timberlake, for example, um, would it say lighting design by Fireplay or would it say lighting design by Nick Whitehouse? Justin's different, but yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that was just uh, a name I grabbed. No, no. I know uh, you have a very it, close relationship with, with Justin as his, you know, his guy. It actually says, it actually says Fireplay. Oh, it does. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Which so, took some negotiation on his, for his side because he didn't want to give that up. Oh, really? And sometimes it appears that as my name appears there instead, but contractually and a lot of the stuff we do, we try to just do everything, you know, produced and designed by Fireplay. That's very cool. But That's- when we're recognizing it in social media and in advertising, we'd love to give credit to the people that have come up with it. And 
of being part of the team because again that's what makes us different and going back to what you said is it allows us to bring completely different thinking into what we're doing and you know video content wise who we use this time lighting designer who we use this time production designer and it it also means that it's not you know when people come to us they don't just know oh well you know nick's going to do lighting josh is going to do production design and that and that's what you're going to get right and it's not that hmm. and it's not that at all and i think that's what makes it more successful is that every show we've done has looked totally different and has had a different team and yes being as being the ceo my job isn't necessarily to push the creative on people and to say this is what i think it should be it should be to make sure that we're outputting the quality of work that i think fireplay needs to do so one of one of the things that i noticed you know i, I went through obviously all of the shows that you've designed on your website i've seen you know ton of pictures i watched the uh the justin timberlake halftime special again you know one theme at least for me that that comes through is is intimacy of design right so like mm -hmm. if you look at the super bowl halftime that you did while you're sitting there in a giant stadium right everything the shot itself it looks like you're you're standing in a much smaller environment per se right yep. visually it, it is very impactful so did that is that influence or did that somehow come through when you were when you were touring in smaller clubs and things like that where you have the intimacy of the small venue right or you try to create that small venue intimacy in a very large space right because that's that was my big takeaway from so many of your design pro uh, projects which, which is good that you picked that up that so i would say most of our artists come to us and say and said i want it to feel intimate and i want it to feel like people are close to me and i'd like to get close to my fans I think it's uh, definitely something that's very cool. And, you know, we're not just thinking about the artist show here. We're thinking about the fan experience and the TV experience and, and how to do that. And we want people to have enjoyed everything about it. We don't want people to say, hey, I sat right at the back and all I saw was this little poster stamping the screen all the time. So we're always trying to find ways to, um, you know, I don't want to say immersive because it's not the right word, but it, it's like more inclusive you know so people feel like they're actually in the show and part of the show and that's the reason I mean, to go to a live event and not watch it on tv i mean directors of photography must just hug you after an event like that <laughs> i mean you're making their work pretty pretty easy for them because i mean visually you know and again i just just going back to the uh, to the the super bowl halftime right mm -hmm. it's just it's it just the perception of i'm watching justin timberlake perform in a 1,000 seat venue or 2,000 seat venues. That's where the majority of the shots were oriented that way. And yeah, at the end, you know, you zoomed out to the stadium and everything else, but it was just very, 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 the artist is right in front of me. It was very, very cool, you know? Yeah. And, you know, ultimately that performance was more about the actual artist and performers themselves than the environment. And everyone knew it was a Super Bowl show and it was big and we came back to it at the end. But, you know, Justin is an incredibly talented guy and, um, just putting a camera on him and letting him do his thing, he, he can own that show. And that's why we, we felt that was the right direction to take for that show. So Interesting. what is your, your approach to like scaling this business from a, from a people standpoint, your approach to adding people, like, are you, are you looking to bring in top designers, top, you know, production designers, top people, or are you looking to mentor young up and coming people and bring them into the company? So yes to both. You need the top designers to mentor the up and coming people. Right. Um, you know, I think 
whether the top designers are actual employees or the top designers are just people that that come in for a project or two, I think, you know, I, I'm very much in line with giving back from the, you know, the opportunities I was given and the opportunities that many of the people that came through, you know, Brian and uh, I know a lot of other people that had similar mentors and people like that, I think trying to find younger talent that we can help push forwards and, and develop and give opportunities to it is definitely, you know, what's something that Firefly is about. Yeah, I would, I would guess that exactly, you know, your relationship with Brian and, and how that all went about. And, and again, the, the impact that it had on your career personally, um, that would guide you to do things in a certain way to want to bring people in under your wing and, and give them the same opportunities to go out and tour with these bands. And, um, you know, I, I think it's, uh, I think it's a brilliant, um, company. I think the, uh, the concept is excellent. I'd definitely like to learn a lot more about it, which we're not going to have time today, of course, because we all have lives and other things to do. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I definitely, I love what you've done with Fireplay. I think it's a great concept. I think, you know, one of the challenges in this industry is that everybody has to keep up with the scale of the other. So, you know, the artist can't be massive and then the lighting company and the promoter and the designer and the crew tiny, you know, you have to, and it's, it's what's driven private equity into lighting companies and sound companies. It's what's driven private equity into manage, uh, into manufacturing, uh, or public companies into manufacturing, you know, it's hard to be small in an industry where the client is, you know, live nation or, um, you know, the NFL, for example. <clears throat> and, uh, so, you know, we've kind of been forced to grow up and what you've done is you've taken something very artistic, you know, a design company or a, a design process and not made it corporate, but made it into a business that supports the business plan and business model of, you know, your client, which might be, you know, Justin Timberlake, or it might be whoever. And, you know, they're out there to make money because they're not touring to support album sales anymore. They're touring to put food on the table. Yep. Exactly. Well, thank you. I mean, ultimately that's what we all tried to do here. And it, it, it's not just me that the very hardworking people that have just as much into this that, um, than I do, you know, that have pushed this from the start as well. You know, Kelly, who's, and Josh, who started this with me back two and a half years ago now, have done just as much work in their related fields and, and things to, to kind of do the same thing and to find the talent and to, to kind of build this thing and say, hey, you know, we don't want a big, big, big egotistical company that takes all the work. We want to be a company that people feel comfortable working with. Right. And, and helping to try and turn, like you just said, how does the small designer grow with the band and, and keep it as Live Nation gets bigger and bigger and pushes them into a bigger and bigger shows and wants someone that they trust to do it? Well, we're now that person they trust and we can help that smaller designer grow with their band. Yeah. And we can offer them the support they need and, and be a resource when they need to ask the questions of, you know, how many people can I put in this little thing? Oh, it's seven square foot. But, you know, it's little things like that that we all know that people need to learn. Well, and do you also like if a designer brings, for example, let's say a designer brings a show to you and says, we want to kind of incorporate this into, uh, you know, into fireplay, into your model. 
Um, I would guess that you bring a lot of experience and knowledge in managing vendors as well. So working very closely with the lighting companies and with the staging companies and um, set companies, whatever it is, um, not not necessarily to leverage them, like not so that you can put wrenches into them or anything, but just to make sure that you know, that design or, or that tour doesn't get lost in maybe some of their bigger shows or whatever. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we, we have shows out with pretty much every vendor that's out there mm-hmm. and great relationships with almost all of them. And it, it really does help. So, you know, we can introduce the designer that they don't quite know and say, Hey, this is the right person to deal with. Let us know if you need any help. And, right. and we can, we can help that. Well, and I mean, let's face it, just because, you know, it's it's a business and uh, it's become a little more corporate and stuff doesn't mean we all have to be assholes to each other. <laughs> you know, you can have great relationships with, you know, whether it's PRG or upstaging or whoever, and they're really good people behind those companies. And most of whom, you know, I'm sure you've known for a very long time. I certainly have too long, some of them. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I think it's a really cool thing. Bravo. You know, I, I, uh, I look forward to watching Fireplay grow massively. Uh, so do you have, do you have goals or aspirations to expand into back into UK? Uh, maybe I'll leave it at that for now. Okay. Um, there, there is a, one of the guys that does work for us, Dom Smith, uh, came from, actually came from the same era with me and Brian and, was one of the guys that Brian championed as well. He, uh, he's been working with us, um, over in the U S for the last f- couple of years, helping us with like Billie Eilish and uh, little big town, and lady antebellum. And he's now, um, full time with us. So he's going to start working on some projects in the UK and we'll just see if it's something that works over there too. It's a very different market to the U S there. So, where are you we'll physically based out of now? Like I know you work from yeah. from your home in in Vermont, but is the company based so, in uh, L.A. or no? We we're, we're, uh, yeah we have an office in Dumbo, um, which is mainly the production design, architectural design, and theatrical stuff there. And then we have an office in Nashville that we just opened, and we're actually looking for a a bigger office already in Nashville. So Nashville has kind of replaced L.A. in a lot of ways, hasn't it? I, I can tell you that in two and a half years, we've done two meetings in LA and thousands in Nashville. And wow. New York. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. It really yeah, so. is music city, I guess now. Yeah. There's definitely still tons of work in, in LA, but yeah, you know, also with the communication tools out there and exactly like what we're doing now is you don't physically have to be in a room as, as much. A lot of the time it helps when you're yeah. designing, but to talk to potential clients and people that, you know, um, you know, a lot of the times we can do things over the phone or digitally. And, right. You know, we try and another way we try and keep costs down is, is to have people in the right places. Right. Save yeah. them flying people all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. So moving into, to gear a little bit. So your, your approach to design, um, technology, good or bad? Technology is good. It's always good. But there can be too much technology, right? I don't think there can ever be too much technology as long as it's used right and it's hidden. Right. So, I, so you know, you're a fan what of bleeding you edge technology, right? I've so always pushed take that. the newest, newest. Yeah. 
Uh, that that's one of my weaknesses in design is to find things that probably weren't designed for live music or touring and figure out how to turn them into something we can use. Yeah, I've actually talked about this before or mentioned this one little thing, but uh, I was invited one time long, long ago, probably 15 years ago or more by Butch Allen to go see a band that he was working with, Garbage. Uh, mm-hmm. And this was during their heyday, not not like a resurgence or anything. So it was probably 15 or 20 years ago. And they were playing somewhere in L.A., maybe Santa Monica or something. And um, there were these kick lights, like these up lights on the band that were just unbelievable. And I, I was like, that looks so incredible. And it was, I don't know what the color temperature was. It had to be like 2200 Kelvin or something and or less, maybe even sub 2000 Kelvin. They were almost orange. And, um, but it just looked so eerie and so cool, uh, the way they were being used. And I was front of house and I just leaned over and I said, Butch, what the hell are those lights? And he said, I bought them at Home Depot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, I loved it. And I never forgot that. It was like, you know, he paid 50 bucks each for them or something at Home Depot. And he uses them as, as specials, uh, in a couple of songs, one in particular, um, and uh, I just thought it was the coolest look, but Home Depot lights, yeah. Yeah. So on the topic of technology, so we've talked a lot, first of all, about the name of this Clay Packy fixture, which, you know, we were botching all over the place. And finally, actually, <laughs> Pio Nahum from Clay Packy, who we had on a few weeks ago, he told us that it's called Stilos. It is. And uh, so... You know, it's something that's been very intriguing to both of us and to a lot of the people we've spoken to as well, um, that, you know, what is this thing and and how are they going to use it? And what about variances and all of these different questions and thoughts about it. But it's so awesome to now be seeing this thing in actual applications, uh, you know, the big uh, uh, airport one in Italy. Um, yeah you know, that, that big fan into the sky look that they've got in that one. And there's been a few other applications, but yours with, um, uh, post post Malone, I guess, right. Posty fest. Um, I've seen some incredible video and, and photos from that thing. So tell us a little bit about, you know, how that came about your experience with that fixture. Um, you know, cause I mean, we're curious. So, uh, firstly, Post Malone, we were actually just the producers of the stadium show. I wasn't the design. We were, it's one of those things where we partnered with people and, um, the posty touring team brought us in to help them come up with something amazing for the stadium Mm -hmm. and execute it. So the designers are actually Ben Daglish, Ben Ward and Lewis James. So those guys came to us with what they wanted. And I'd just been in Italy at Clay Packy and. Um, oh, I was at just, it was just before actually we'd started talking about what the Posty Festival could be. And we'd done some stage drawings and pitched a few ideas around. And, uh, I went to Italy as part of a, Hey, come and look at our new technology. Let's figure out a way to, to do stuff. And, uh, I saw the Stilos and, um, I was like, yep, yeah, this is a perfect for Post Malone. And I know that the Clay Packy guys were kind of 
still trying to figure out everything and it wasn't released worldwide yet. And I said, look, this is the date of the show. We're going to need 200. Is that okay? <laughs> and, <laughs> That's awesome. And, you know, and obviously that all, all the stuff was, I'd heard all the stuff about, um, you know, well, maybe they can't be used in the US, all of this kind of stuff. And I said, well, just tell us what we have to do and we'll make it work. And um, I went back to the US, I pitched it to the Benz and Lewis and said, look, we've got this opportunity to use these lights. It may be the first time in the US. There may be a few things we need to do to work around them to make it work. Are you interested? And all of them jumped on it saying, yes, they look perfect for what we want to do. Um, so that's kind of how we got we we came to it, and then obviously these guys and between us we came up with a lighting design that worked, and the post team was happy with, and that's what it was. And so the technology in the, in those lights is is pretty crazy. It really is. And so a few questions. Number one, mm -hmm. how challenging was it to work with, being a laser sourced fixture? Um, did you have to have factory guys there? Did you have to have a laser variance and all of those things? So, yeah, they're, 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 uh, it's not fully up and running yet. So I think the official release, release of this fixture is LDI this week. And I know that the Clay Packy guys have been working on a really easy, and uh, I know they've been working really hard with uh, the FDA and a lot of people in the US that advise on this to put a process in place. So our process was slightly different um, because obviously it's not set up fully yet, but it was, there's a couple of things about the fixture that you, you just need to be aware of. And then it, you could just use it like a normal fixture. There's a couple of safety distances that you need to design around and in any show bigger than, you know, a small theater show, the safety distances are fine. Um, and I think that once you've kind of understand it's about fixture placement and about where you can shine the light and, and kind of how simple the process is to, to set up the light so they are safe. It, it's actually not bad at all. It's not nowhere near as complicated as the laser that we've done. And it's definitely not as complicated as the audience stat scanning lasers that we've done with the JT stuff. So my pro actually all of our process was really simple. And because this was the first one, in the States. Yeah. I mean, Alberto from Claypack, he came over just to make sure that everything was completely done perfectly above board. And we, you know, we measured the lights, everything was done, but and did everything they behave? they'd set up. Oh yeah. But nice. everything they'd set up in their documentation, that's meant to be a super easy kind of like, follow this and you'll be fine. We did. And I think it took us 20 minutes to make sure everything was fine from the usual, you know, um, lighting designers kind of perspective and everything was great. But you can basically just use these things like a normal moving light. And as long as you're far enough away from the, from the audience or whatever, um, you yeah. don't have to worry about scanning into their faces no. or anything like that. The, it's just a moving light, the, right? Yeah. The crazy thing about this light is because it's, you know, the term laser is used. Everyone assumes that inherently it's, you know, as dangerous as a traditional laser, but it's, it's not, it's, uh, you know, the, the thing with the fixture is it's actually using laser to create a light source rather than it being an actual, uh, you know, laser beam that comes right. out at the end of it. Well, I mean, it's so, no different than, than video projectors, you know, we're using laser video projectors all the time now, and nobody worries about those hitting someone in the audience. 
So uh, to be honest, they're, they're supposed to. Yeah. But because there's so many people uh, talking about this fixture, and because we, you know, it was laser and clay pack, you want to do it, make sure that everything is done perfectly and the right way, so there are no problems. And this got a bit more flag than most things. Right. Uh, so and so is it a laser that excites a crystal? Is that what it is? Sort of like the laser headlights, stuff like that, or is it really a laser laser shoot now? No, it's a laser. No, it, it it's it's a bunch of lasers, different colored lasers, but with a, their proprietary lensing system and the, this whole engine that they've created. Um, by the time it comes out, it it's not a uh, it's not this this an actual um, I forgot the term. Uh, it's not the uh raid it's not got the it's so um, it's not going to cut steel <laughs> it's not going to cut steel right yeah so it's so, uh, well according to what pio was telling us and i don't know if you know pio but longtime ceo of of uh clay Packy, who just yep, retired recently yeah so pio was telling us that it's been approved for a while already in europe and been used in europe as a regular moving light and it's not dangerous and it's not, you know, because of the design of the optics and everything and, and Osram obviously being very heavily involved in this process. So, um, I think like you said, it's because it's quote a laser and of course all the competitors are going to make sure the laser police are there at every show, you know, <laughs> closing it down or whatever. So, um, you know, to me, it's super exciting. Like it, it just, I mean, if, if you look at what they've done and you look at the quality of light and you look at this innovation that they've done, yeah, it's a, it's a beam that's, that's brighter than a Unico's beam. Once you, as you start doing the colors and the stuff, yeah. but it, it's, it's like a three, 400 watt fixture. That's half the size, but in color, it's outrageous. Like the red and it, magenta that comes out of that thing is I've never seen anything it, like that. The colors actually are perceived brighter than the white. Yeah. Which is incredible. I mean, when, when you see it in real life, you know it's different. And obviously yeah. this is, you know, version one of what a laser could be, a laser engine could be. Yeah. And, and I saw it the first time. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. This is one of those fixtures where I don't need to compare it against anything else. I can see straight away this is different and I can use this on a ton of things. Yeah. So you That's don't awesome. think this is going to be a sort of use it once and next uh, or will this become sort of like a supercharged Sharpie that's that's used again and again and again for different things? I mean, isn't that what people said about the Sharpie? It'll be used right. once and never used again. Or look how many look how many yeah. Sharpies and versions of the Sharpie are out there. Yeah, you know. Yeah, no, the Sharpie created I, an industry unto itself for sure. It did. Yeah, and this is, I think, this is you know probably the first step in Clay Packy's plan of fixtures that could be used with this engine right and it, it's an incredible one to do it i mean literally when it's one of those reasons where i would put it on shows straight away I, I can think of five shows that we're working on next year that we'd love to have these fixtures on just because of the colors yeah like it's, well i mean this I, thing certainly has super bowl written all over it i'll tell you that i mean that that ring of fixtures that goes up around the top of the stadium has to be stilos you know from now on i mean that's got to happen you know it's yeah, just and, made for that and i i give credit to the the clay packy guys they've worked really hard with the, the government to to make sure that everyone is safe using this thing and what's what i've actually found in the process of sitting with them and talking about it is 
this light's inherently more safe than all of the beam lights we're talking about, like Sharpie and Super Sharpie and things like that. It's yeah. actually the thing that damages your eyes isn't laser light; it's it's radiance. And you know, even the VL three thousand is is as dangerous as this. You know, this light. Right. And no one's ever had a problem, but because someone wrote, wrote laser on it it suddenly falls into a different classification. Well, the interesting thing about this one though, is that you can point it in the air and, you know, uh, obstruct, you know, airplanes five, six miles away. So I think that's one of the challenging thing, at least for outdoor shows like this, this, uh, Lenate airport thing in, in Italy that they did surprised me a little bit that you could put beams in the air like that right next to an airport. Um, but- don't we have that problem with synchrolites and the old 3500s that we put on yeah. outdoor shows? We still have to call the FAA and get clearance. That is true. And they'll shut yeah. it down. That is There's true. There's no difference between this fixture and anything else we've done. Yeah. You know what's one of the coolest things I ever did was, um, I don't know if you know another British guy named Mark Rollins who used to own a company called Towards 2000. But mm-hmm. Mark got heavily into helicopters. And one year, LDI was in Vegas. And Mark called me up and he goes, hey, you want to go up in my helicopter? And I said, yeah, sure. Why not? So I met him over at the uh, executive airport and we went up and this was pre 9-11. So um, at the time you could like, we were flying circles around the stratosphere and waving at people and stuff like right, you know, it couldn't have been more than 50 yards away from the, from the actual (laughs) tower. Um, But, but we flew through the, the beams at the top of the Luxor. Yeah. And I don't even remember what wattage of xenon lamps those were, but 7,000, I think. And, yeah, exactly. and a whole bunch of them. So, you know, when you flew into that beam, it was just like, you know, the sun came out all of a sudden. It was so <laughs> bright flying into I'm, that thing. You know, and it's, it's an interesting thing because for all new technology and all firsts in the industry, you know, this is the first time someone's taken that and turned it into something that we can use. Yeah. Everyone, when, the, when the first LEDs came out, everyone was saying, no, this will never work. You know, this, they can never be bright enough. What's the point? Yeah. And there's always a few little extra steps when you're trying to t- do this. But for me, the, the difference in light output and what you can do with these things, it's, it's worth a few extra minutes every day just to make it work. Right. You know, what we're trying to do is create the best show. So right. why not put the time in? And after all, that's pretty much our job. Yeah. Well, and you know, there's money on the table, so they'll get this variance thing figured out and they'll make it much easier to, uh, to, to use this thing on, you know, just your average show where you don't have to bring in special technicians and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I, the, the plans that I've seen that I'm not sure they're sure yet, but you know, it's as simple as registering once on a clay packy website, which takes about 20 minutes and you'll get the variance in the mail two to eight weeks later. Oh, that's nothing. That's easy. No, and, and as long as you design and have a plot that shows the safety distances, that's what the laser, that's what the officer will need. Yeah. Well, that's not so, so difficult. It, no, it doesn't. It's not bad at all. So, do you need a variance for every show, or just for yeah. at the front end of a tour? I for the operator, I believe. Ah, oh, I see. I see. So, as long as the person that's that's designing or running the desk has gone through and registered and I, I think it's play packy takes care of all the paperwork you just go and do that little you need to make this is a safety distance this is what you need to do here this is what you need to do here and then you'll get your certificate and you can use it whenever you want as long as you have the paperwork with you showing you've done the safety distances in your plot right so uh, what what 
what has not been designed that you need right now? Uh, Fixture. I don't know yet. Technology. I mean, always smaller, lighter, less power kind yeah. of thing is better for us. Yeah. That's the headaches we come up when we're doing big shows. That's always the headache is weight limitations and power limitations. And it, getting it, it in and out faster is always a thing. I have it, some ideas, but... Uh, it's really cool that I'm seeing that, you know, other than things like there's an occasional thing that pops out like this Stelos where it's just incredible new technology. But for the most part, we're seeing more um, things that are making stuff that we already have more efficient, lighter, easier to transport, um, easier to hang, easier to get down, whatever it is, it, it just seems to be more looking at the convenience and efficiency and cost of, you know, um, executing a show. And, you know, PRG, who we've talked to a lot on on this podcast, keeps coming up with new technology like the space frame and wonder wall that I think is just really cool stuff that just makes it a little bit better, you know, or safer mm -hmm. or stronger or lighter or whatever. Um, so yeah, it seems like a lot of manufacturers are now looking at that, looking at, you know, we don't need more gobos. We don't need more colors. We don't necessarily need a bigger, brighter led lamp, you know? Um, now we need to just make things more, convenient or efficient slick yeah, yeah. I, I think that's one part of it i i do still think there's opportunity for creating things that, that do change the way we use light so you know like we just said when when the sharpie came along there was nothing like it right so that became a kind of trend to put those things into it because we'd done it and i was i was literally having an instagram conversation with someone the other day because i posted a picture and there was some 1K synchrolites hanging on a truss behind me. And they were like, they did 1K, they did little synchrolites. And I'm like, yeah, this was before any kind of beam light. And I needed a beam light in the rig. So wow. synchrolite design, designed a, I think it was a 2K version actually of the synchrolite that could go on the rig for me so that I could have beams out of the sky. Well, and then you know, Coamar came out with the, uh, the CF1200 wash light, which was sort of close to a beam. You know, it wasn't quite there yet, but it was very close. Um, yeah, Comar and, Comar and VL came out at the same time. That's when we got the VL3500 with the clear lens thing as well. Right, yeah, yeah. But it, but before that, was that's what I had. And, you know, people hated me. There was 30 of these things in the rig, and they had to run two up to it. So Yeah, yeah. It wasn't fun. <laughs> so, Nick, is there anything else that we've missed or you want to promote or mention or whatever before we let you go here? Uh, no, I think I think that's great. I, thanks for you know, taking the time and inviting me to do this. It's nice. always nice to talk to people that, that get what we're doing and encourage us along. And, you know, that's all we we're here to do is to do great shows and to do it being nice people. Well, you're, you seem to be doing yeah. both. So, uh, we appreciate you very much and, and we're happy you were able to take the time right before LDI here and get this done. So, um, hopefully, we'll find a way of bumping into you at the show and actually saying hello in real life. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. In great. 48 hours. I'll be, I'll be around. Great. Well, th thank you great so night. much, Nick. And, uh, don't be shocked. The music is going to start here shortly, but we appreciate you very much and have a safe trip over to Vegas. Great. Thank, thank you guys. Thanks. Thanks.